I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and you're listening to the podcast where I tell you what the newspaper headlines had to say about one specifically famous event from history. Then, I look through the papers to find out what else was going on around the country and world at the same time. I tell you what random events shared space with history-making headlines. Today's day is another one that has been on my list to cover since before the first episode of this podcast even aired last summer. And to be honest, that list is pretty long, and it's going to take me a while to get through everything on it. Now, today's famous date isn't one of those that made the front page of newspapers all over the country. Instead, it made it into just a few local papers. But the impact of this moment couldn't be measured at that time. I know I, for one, learned about the person this episode is about starting clear back in elementary school. And I'm sure most of you, if you weren't alive to remember the events in real time, probably learned all about it in history class too. The date of the headline is December 2nd, 1955. I'm taking this headline from one of just a few that covered the story the Montgomery Advertiser out of Montgomery, Alabama. This headline says, Negro jailed here for overlooking bus segregation. Friends, the day before this headline was printed was the day a woman named Rosa Parks sat on a bus seat and refused to get up. Now, there are different versions of this story out there, and I'm going to tell you two of them. Keep in mind that there is no way I can tell you everything about this case, though. There just isn't enough time, and I'm determined to keep these episodes under 30 minutes each week. According to the article in the Montgomery Advertiser, there was an actual code saying that black people couldn't sit in the front section of the bus, the section that was reserved for white people. Sometimes there are laws or codes that don't necessarily get followed, whether it's because people don't generally know about the rules, or because they know that authorities aren't going to do anything about violations. In Montgomery, bus drivers were given police authority when it came to matters of enforcing their bus segregation codes. On December 1st, 1955, the day before the headline printed, Rosa Parks was riding a bus home after a long day of working at the Montgomery Fair Department store, and she sat in the back of the section for whites. The rest of the seats eventually filled up, and when a man came aboard and demanded Rosa give up her seat to him, She refused. The bus driver pulled over, the police were called, and the bus driver signed the warrant for her arrest. As an interesting side note, that wasn't the first time Rosa had had a bad interaction with the same bus driver. You see, colored people were told they had to come to the front of the bus, pay their money, and then get back off the bus and walk to the rear door to get on it in their own section. One day, Rosa refused to get off the bus and instead walked down the bus's aisle to the back. The bus driver was not happy with her. That's version one, the version of the story I was taught. But History.com, the website run by the History Channel, tells a slightly different version of the story. According to them, Rosa was sitting in the section marked for blacks, in the front row. When the section for whites filled up, the man demanded she give up her seat in her section. The other three people sharing a row with her got up and moved, 
but Rosa refused. To give you a little bit more information about Rosa, she was born in Tuskegee, Alabama in 1913, but moved to Montgomery when she was 11 years old. Education was important to her family, and she attended school faithfully until the middle of her junior year of high school when she had to drop out to help take care of her ill grandmother. When Rosa was just 19 years old, she married Raymond Parks. Rosa's husband encouraged her to get her high school diploma, and she did. On the day in question, after Rosa was arrested, she called her husband and told him what happened. Word got back to a man named E.D. Dixon. He was president of the Montgomery chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Rosa served as the chapter secretary, so he knew her well. Rosa Parks was not the first person to refuse to give up her seat on a bus. If you don't know the story of Claudette Colvin, you should look it up. But Rosa knew the right people, and she was in the right place at the right time to kind of become a poster child. As soon as Edie Dixon heard what happened to Rosa, he knew it was the moment he'd been waiting for. Before the night was up, they began copying a flyer to be sent home with school children and handed out around the city declaring a boycott of city buses on the day scheduled for Rosa's trial, December 5th. At their trial, Rosa was fined $10 plus $4 for court costs and found guilty of violating segregation laws. Meanwhile, the response of the bus boycott was a lot bigger than E.D. Dixon and other organizers could have ever imagined. They took even more advantage of the situation and formed the Montgomery Improvement Association. The first president was a 26-year-old minister who had recently moved to town. You might have heard of him. Yes, it was Martin Luther King Jr. The legality of bus segregation and lawsuits surrounding it wound its way through the courts until it made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. During this time, both Dixon and King's homes in Montgomery were bombed as racial tension escalated. Rosa lost her job at the department store because of her actions. Almost a year later, a decision was reached in the highest court. On November 13, 1956, the Supreme Court announced that bus segregation was unconstitutional. Rosa Parks immediately became known as the mother of the civil rights movement. When asked about her experience, Rosa said, quote, People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. For all of you who know the Rosa Parks story, you know I could go on and on and on about her story and her life after the incident in December of 1955, but that's not the point of this podcast. So, let's look in the newspapers to see what else was going on the day a woman from Montgomery decided not to stand up. For my first additional history story of December 2nd, 1955, I have another story about the fight over racial desegregation. This article was printed in the Knoxville News Sentinel out of Knoxville, Tennessee. The headline says, Georgia Governor Would Bar Georgia Tech from Playing Pitt. For those who like sports, especially college football, you'll know that there are certain games that are looked forward to every year. There are certain games that probably every player out there hopes to play in someday. One of those big games was, and is, the Sugar Bowl. The Sugar Bowl has been played on New Year's Day every single year 
since 1935. The only bowl game that's been around longer than it is the Rose Bowl, although I will tell you that the Sun Bowl and the Orange Bowl are tied with the Sugar Bowl for the second longest running games. Anyway, the Sugar Bowl is played in New Orleans, Louisiana, and back in 1955, the excitement of the upcoming bowl game was already making headlines, even though the game was still 30 days away. The two teams that would be playing in the game had already been decided. It would be the Pittsburgh Panthers against the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. There was a problem with this lineup, however. You see, as the headline implies, the governor of Georgia didn't want Georgia Tech to play in the game. Or maybe it was more that he didn't want Pittsburgh to play in the game, and it all boiled down to one reason, or one person. Bobby Greer. Bobby was a good football player, which is why Pittsburgh had him on their team. He played in the position of running back. But Bobby was black, and according to those in high political office, what might be acceptable behavior in Pittsburgh wasn't going to fly in the segregated South. The governor insisted that Bobby Greer not be allowed to play, or else the entire Georgia Tech team should boycott the game to avoid playing with him. If this sounds ridiculous to you, you're my kind of people. I read about this incident with a lot of anger and frustration over the treatment of other people. I should also note here that although I'm not going to share his story today, the lynching of Emmett Till had occurred just a few months earlier, and his name was still being mentioned in newspapers on December 2nd. If you know that story, you'll know just how horrifying things were. But that's what people were dealing with in 1955. Anyway, Georgia's governor, Governor Marvin Griffin, pulled out all the stops to try to get the game changed. He sent an official letter to the State Board of Regents, who had jurisdiction over Georgia Tech, asking them to pull out of the game and boycott it since Pittsburgh was bringing Bobby, and since the Pittsburgh section of the stadium wouldn't be segregated. The rest of the seats, reserved for Georgia fans, would be segregated. Governor Griffin wanted the Board of Regents to immediately call a special meeting to discuss the matter. The newspaper printed the text of the official telegram the governor sent, and this is the part that really made me angry. The governor wrote, first demanding the immediate meeting be held at his request, and then adding, quote, The South stands at Armageddon. The battle is joined. We cannot make the slightest concession to the enemy in these dark and lamentable hours of struggle. There is no more difference in compromising integrity of race on the playing field than in doing so in the classroom. One break in the dike and the relentless sea will push in and destroy us. We are in this fight 100%, not 93%, not 75%, not 64%, but a full 100%. At the time, the Georgia legislature had passed, and the voters approved, a change to the state constitution that would make some schools private and would call for all public schools to be closed to avoid mixed-race classrooms, and I believe he included the state-run colleges in that as well. Now, unfortunately, the governor wasn't the only one that felt that way, and his telegrams sent to the Board of Regents followed two days of protesting on Georgia Tech's campus. One of the people helping to lead those protests was on the Board of Regents. But, luckily, despite the governor's requests, the State Board of Regents chairman released a statement basically saying they were going to ignore the governor's complaints. So, what do you think Pittsburgh had to think about it all? 
Well, they responded by releasing a statement saying that Bobby Greer would, quote, travel, eat, live, practice, and play with his team. Good for them. The day of the game finally arrived, and Pittsburgh showed up with their star running back, Bobby Greer, in tow. His fellow teammates and coaches knew that he was under tremendous pressure and tried to keep things light before the game. His teammates even tried pulling practical jokes on him during practice to keep him laughing. The game was actually played on January 2nd of that year, and I'm guessing it was because New Year's Day fell on a Sunday? Anyway, the game began, and honestly, it must have been a pretty boring game, because the final score was 7-0 in favor of Georgia Tech. During the game, a controversial, game-changing call was called against Bobby Greer. The crowd started to boo, but they weren't booing Bobby. They were booing the play. Some people claim the call was made because Bobby was black and the Southern referees were biased. But the truth of the matter was that Pittsburgh had approved all of the game officials beforehand, and according to one source, the man making the call was actually from Pittsburgh. He said later that he made the call the way he thought he saw it played. Later, when video was looked at, some believe he definitely got the call wrong. But despite the crazy call, Greer was the leading rusher in the game and went down in history as the first person to break the color barrier in the Sugar Bowl. After college, he joined the United States Air Force before becoming an administrator at a community college in the Pittsburgh area. In 2019, he was inducted into the Sugar Bowl Hall of Fame. Bobby Greer is still alive today and he still lives in the Pittsburgh area. I'll post a little video of him from a few years ago talking about his experience in the Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed Facebook group, so you can hear about it in his own words. For my second Additional History story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Index Journal out of Greenwood, South Carolina. This headline says, Trapped Diver Saved, Ready to Try Again. I'm not actually sure what day this event happened, but it was in a lot of newspapers on December 2nd, 1955, so I feel okay assuming that it happened the day before. Anyway, a group of Navy divers were diving in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere near the Naval Ordnance Laboratory and Testing Facility, which was about 70 miles southeast of Washington, D.C. Then something suddenly went wrong. They had been doing testing and training exercises, and one of the men, a man named Joe Tallarico, was sent down 133 feet underwater to recover a test mine that, if I understood the article correctly, was attached to an anchor. Joe was not a stranger to the water or to diving. He was from Chicago and had been diving for 10 years already at this point. In his mind, the dive was going to be very routine. He'd go down, retrieve the mine, and immediately come back up. The entire trip should have taken him about 18 minutes, so not very long at all. But after about 15 minutes in the water, Joe called to the boat waiting above that he had a problem. His air hose had become tangled around the anchor. No matter what he tried, he couldn't get it free. He was literally pinned to the mine. Another diver, William Fisher, was sent down to help Joe get untangled. William worked on the tangle for half an hour, and he was just making progress and almost had Joe free when suddenly the tide grabbed him and pulled him away. William later said it was an awful feeling to have to come to the surface without him. 
The ship sent other divers down to help Joe. And they tried, and they tried, but the tide kept getting worse. And one by one, all of the divers came back up without Joe. Five divers had all tried and failed. By this point, Joe had already been stuck under the water for quite a few hours. He said at first he was doing okay and figured he'd eventually be rescued. But then after four hours, the cold started to seep in and he became really discouraged. He said that was when he started to believe he would never come up again. He said while he was under the water, he said many prayers. And I'm sure he also thought of his wife, Carmela. Then the Navy sent down a man named Gray Renegar. Gray wasn't a stranger to the water either. He joined the Navy in 1940 and had spent years on carriers in submarines and diving. For Gray, it was more than just a rescue operation. You see, Joe Tallarico was one of his good friends, and he was not going to let him die down there. By this point in the day, it was getting dark outside, and the rescue crews had to work by the light of the ship's spotlight, which probably wasn't all that helpful 133 feet underwater. True to his word and his promise to Joe, somehow Gray Renegar managed to do what nobody else had been able to do. He freed Joe Tallarico. However, if you know anything about scuba diving, you'll know that just because he was free from being tangled up with an anchor didn't mean Joe was out of danger. He had been underwater for nine hours at this point, and because of the water pressure where he was versus the water pressure at the surface, he was at great risk for decompression sickness, or the bends, as it's often called. The other divers had to pull him up and then stop every dozen feet. They'd wait a specified amount of time and then float up another dozen feet. Wait, and then repeat the process. Finally, Joe Tallarico reached the surface and he broke out of the water. He was immediately helped onto a boat and rushed to the shore where an ambulance was waiting to drive him a hundred yards to the building where a decompression chamber was located. After just a few minutes in the chamber, Joe managed to lift his head and a hand to wave at his wife who was looking through the chamber's porthole at him. At least one Navy physician admitted that they hadn't expected Joe to survive the ordeal. So when he emerged from the chamber in what appeared to be excellent health, everyone was shocked. He immediately kissed his wife, and then he kissed her again so the photographers and reporters could capture the moment. Gray Renegar passed away in 2015, and the incident from 1955 was written about in his obituary as one of the most important events in his life, the day he was able to save the life of his friend. For many... An experience like that would deter someone from ever entering the water again. But it wasn't so for Joe Tallarico. When he was interviewed right after the accident, he said, quote, I'm ready to go down again right away. The Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, We don't often get such a close-up view of Navy stuff and stamina. In the Tallarico episode, we get it full scale. An important part of it was his own cool-headed personal battle against a terrifying experience. An equally important part was that long, stubborn rescue operation. Not just a fine life-saving story. There's a good deal here of Navy tradition and know-how and teamwork. To Americans, it's something pretty good to hear about. For my last additional history story of the day, I briefly considered telling you about the results of the Nationwide Safe Driving Day, because it seemed to be printed in every single paper I opened. 
and it was on the front page of most of them. Apparently, the nation had set a day aside with a goal of having no accidents, no speeding, and especially no deaths on the roadways. But according to articles from many of the towns involved, the day was a failure, and the death toll was just as high as it was on any other normal day. Instead, I'm going to tell you a kind of sad story with a happy ending about someone who played a major role in history. And when I say history, I'm talking about world history. This headline comes from the front page of the Long Beach Independent out of California. It says, Aviation Pioneer Homeless. Back when Orville and Wilbur Wright were working on becoming the first men to successfully fly an airplane, they enlisted a man to help them. That man was Charles Edward Taylor. Orville and Wilbur Wright designed and built the airplane, but it was actually Charles Taylor that built the engine in that plane back in 1902. He was born in a log cabin in Illinois in 1868, and when he was just 12 years old, he started to work as a binder for a newspaper in Nebraska. Then he eventually became a toolmaker. When he was 24 years old, he got married and moved to Ohio. There he was hired on to help build farm machinery and bicycles. If you know the history of the Wright brothers, you'll know they got their start in bicycles, and when Charles Taylor eventually went to work for them, history was made. Charles pretty much ran the bicycle shop while the brothers spent their time on aeronautical pursuits in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. When they couldn't find the exact engine they needed for their airplane, they turned to Charles. He made them exactly what they needed. Charles also made the prototype of the first engine used in a military aircraft. Charles spent years working with the Wright brothers, and finally he was going to get his chance to take his first flight in 1908. But when the day finally came, he was bumped from the flight in order to give the spot to an army lieutenant. As fate would have it, that was the day Orville crashed, and the man who had taken Charles Taylor's spot was killed. It was Charles who got to the wreckage first and helped pull the men from the aircraft. Charles once said that he'd always wanted to learn how to fly, but the Wright brothers wouldn't teach him. He said, quote, They said they needed me in the shop and to service their machines, and if I learned to fly, I'd be gadding about the country and maybe become an exhibition pilot, and then they'd never see me again. Charles worked for the Wright family, who treated him well and paid him a lot, until 1920, and then he moved out to California and invested all of his life savings in a real estate venture. Unfortunately, that venture failed, and he found himself back with Orville. It was then that Orville gave him a lifelong annuity of $800. When the U.S. entered World War II, Charles went back to California and started working in a defense factory. He was already in his 70s at this point, and when he had a heart attack a few years later, he could no longer work. His social security payments and the annuity from the Wright brothers, who had both passed away at this point, wasn't enough money to pay for his needs when his health started to decline. That's when the article from December 2, 1955 was printed. One day, Charles had an asthma attack and ended up in the hospital. He managed to get better, and the hospital was ready to release him. But there was a problem. You see, he'd been living with an elderly friend, but she was no longer able to take care of him. He had no place to go, and the man who held a huge place in history was about to be left homeless. He told the staff at the hospital that he would love to go to a sanitarium or a rest home of some sort, but he couldn't afford it. 
the hospital couldn't bear to turn the now 87-year-old man out onto the streets, so they let him stay in the hospital until a better solution could be found. And that solution came in the article I pulled this story from. When reporters caught wind of Charles Edward Taylor's plight, they published articles about him in papers all over the country, accompanied by a picture of the frail man in his hospital bed. People in the aviation industry couldn't stand the thought of one of their own being in a situation like that, so they got together, raised a bunch of funds, and paid for him to be put in a private facility. Even the famous Chuck Yeager sent in $100. Sadly, Charles' asthma was still problematic, and he passed away on January 30, 1956, just shy of two months after the article about him was printed. He was buried at the Portal of Folded Wing Shrine to Aviation in Burbank, California, a shrine where 15 people who made aviation history are buried together. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Lansing State Journal out of Michigan. Since this was December 2nd, 1955, the official start of winter was closing in, although many places would have already had snow by then, and Christmas wish lists were being made. A store called Vandervoort's advertised athletic equipment for boys and girls, including a very large selection of ice skates. They had skates for hockey and skates for figure skating. Those ranged in prices from around $10 to $15 a pair. They were also selling practice skates that were basically just the blades, and they could be attached to a child's shoes with leather straps. Those sold for just 89 cents. Friends, thanks for joining me for today's episode as we looked back at Rosa Parks and the legacy she left. Join me next Monday for an all-new full-sized episode with a famous date that's near and dear to my heart. Talk to you later.